was the message first, and out of that comes praise. So Seth continues to hand out those candy bars. Make sure you check out, make sure they're all valid. Make one for your dad, too. And no evening church. Your Carol will be after you. Alright, James chapter 5. Take one for your day, too, when he gets back. All right. We have been looking through the book of James over the last, uh, this would be like the 30th message. So we've been in the book of James almost this whole entire year, so to speak. And uh, we're in the concluding chapter. And uh, probably if we do this right, today and maybe next week and we'll be done with the book of James. I hope that you have enjoyed the walk through that we've uh, done over the last year. James is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, there's a lot of practical application in it as we've learned over this last year. But let me just give you a recap of the main points of where we've touched because as James wraps this up, he has all of these things in mind. He sort of ends the way he starts. But we looked in the first chapter, verses 2 through 12, and we saw that true faith is shown through endurance. We looked in chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, that true faith is shown through our response to temptation that comes from the trial. We saw in chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, the true faith is shown in how we respond to the Word of God. We saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, that true faith is shown in how we view and treat others. We saw in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, that true faith is shown by our works. We saw in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that true faith is shown in a converted tongue. We saw in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, that true faith is guided by heavenly wisdom. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we saw that true faith is not a friend of the world. In verses, chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6, we saw that true faith is lived out with a heavenly perspective. In verses 7 through 12, which is where we were the last couple of weeks, we saw that true faith is patient. And persevering and I would just to remind you the subject of James is faith all right so when we talk today about what we're going to talk about remember that that is what James is talking about true faith the description of it what it is and what it isn't right what it is that, that how it looks in our lives but faith is the subject so in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, let me read and we'll recap where we were last week again. It says, therefore, <clears throat> verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rains. <clears throat> you also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And we saw through those passages, those verses that were to live in the truth uh, that Christ is coming back. And we spent some time looking at that. Jesus is coming back. Uh, whether you believe the Bible is true or not, it doesn't really matter. Because that doesn't dictate what God says. And God says that Jesus will be back to resurrect his church, resurrect or rapture his church, to be with him one day. Jesus left with that command. He told them to watch and to wait. And that was the command they were given. 
and he is coming back. We're to look for Jesus' return and we're to be patient. The word patient there is the word for endurance. We're to endure. We're to endure. Uh, we're to look at the farmer who is patient in sowing, who is patient in reaping. He was busy about doing his work, but he was patient in both planting the seed and reaping the harvest. Because ultimately, who was in control of the weather and the seed? God is. He told them to look at their own lives and be clean. And, and, and here's what he said to them. Establish your own heart. They were to be established, uh, set in, uh, in, a, in a pattern of living for the Lord. Establish their own heart. They were to be patient with one another. They were to be clean with one another. That's where he says in those verses, um, do not grumble against one another. We also saw that we're to look at the examples. And last week we spent some time looking at the Old Testament prophets where we read through Hebrews chapter 11 and, and all of the things that they endured. We didn't get to Job. We could spend a long time looking at Job. Uh, Job's uh, what Job went through was, was in some ways even different than what the prophets went through because God allowed sickness. He allowed storm. He allowed his possessions to be taken because Satan wanted to prove that this man would turn on God. And in the end, we know that Job did what? He persevered. He endured. And that was the picture there that we didn't look at last week. And then we close with the fact that we're to look to the future and live honestly. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And go to your Bibles to chapter, chapter 5, verse 13, and we'll pick up where we left off. <clears throat> Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is there anyone cheerful? <clears throat> let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let, it, let him call forth the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And the section we're in today, it would be number 11, if you're looking at your notes that you have before. I don't have notes for you, but number 11, and it's this. True faith is shown in our praying. And as we look at this next section of James, uh, let's... Once again, make sure that we keep Scripture in its context. This is a set of verses that has been pulled out, and we'll look at it in a little bit. But it's been pulled out in some ways, taken out of context. We need to understand James's original intent. James closes this letter after addressing many things in, in, in the reference to true faith, those things that we just went down the list and looked at, and the evidence of that true faith. But he also brings it back to the battle that we are involved in for endurance, uh, to, to persevere. Remember how we started when we started this study. Take that if you want, you can go back to James chapter 1, but listen, let me read you these verses. Because he closes almost like he starts. In James chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says, uh, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad, Greetings. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. And if you were to read the next couple verses, it talks about those whose faith is wavering. They're, they're, they're double-minded in their ways. But remember, James is writing to who? What kind of believers is he writing to? The church? What, what, what uh, nationality were they? They were mostly Jewish people. 
This is the first church after Jesus has left in the book of Acts. It's where it started. And he's writing to Jewish believers who have been described as, if you go back to the verses in chapter 1, they've been scattered abroad. The scattering happened as they were forced to leave because of the persecution that is re recorded in Acts chapter 8, in the first four verses. These people, being both Jewish and Christian, faced the hostility from the pagan culture that they lived in. And he starts out encouraging them to patiently endure trials, knowing God is using them to produce maturity in our lives and perseverance. And if they lack wisdom, he tells them what? To pray. To pray. He's also has addressed those who have, in the trials, had a lack of faith. He's addressed those who have given in to temptation and, ha and have given uh, them a path back. He's addressed those who hear the word but don't listen to it. Those who've shown partiality. Those who speak of their faith but have no evidence of it. He's addressed those who have, who have a problem with their tongue. First the teachers, and then those who are guilty of slander. He's addressed those who have listened to the world's wisdom and not God's wisdom. And they've engaged in conflict within the church because their hearts were not settled. And he given, has given them the formula to fix that. Let me see if you remember this. What's the formula to all the problem when it comes to worldliness? See how attentive you were. I mean, you got it, Sue, right? All right, here we go. What's the first thing we're to do? Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you sinners. That's the cure. It starts with humility. <clears throat> and the promise is that those who do this, James says that God, here's the words, will lift them up. Up from where will he lift them? For those who do not know God, it's to salvation through Jesus. For those who have fallen in the struggle from persecutions and trials, he will lift them up from where they fell. He has told them not to slander another brother, and as we said earlier in the opening, they were to live in light of Christ's return. If you go back to the verses we read a few minutes ago in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, let me draw your attention to the words that James uses, because in the context, we've got to get this understanding to get the meaning of what he's saying when he tells us to pray. He says, therefore, be patient. See how the farmer waits, waiting patiently. In verse 8, you also be patient. Verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Verse 11, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job, the patience, the, the endurance of Job. It is in the context of suffering for persecution that he writes encouraging them to endure. And that's where he picks up right here. And we need to keep that in mind. Many uh, a group of people have taken these verses out of context and made them say things that we can apply, but that's not really what James's intent was. So as you listen, as I studied this week, it changed my way of thinking too, especially when we get to the second part of this, these verses. So let's break up these verses, keeping in, in the context in mind. And as he starts out, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? The New, the new International Version uses the word, Is any among you in trouble? The New Living Translation says, Are any of you suffering hardships? The English Standard Version says suffering. Um, and so does the American Standard. The King James Bible says this, Is any among you what James closes with is very applicable to where we are today. We live in a world that's getting worse, not by the minute anymore, but by the second. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, 
surprise it does. Who would have ever thought that there would be a debate going on in our country over killing a baby after it's born, let alone abortion? Who would have ever thought that? Keep in mind, murder is murder inside or outside the womb. Who would have thought that we would ever have to address blatant, in-your-face depravity and the, the issues of sexuality and marriage? Never, and when I was a kid, would I ever have pictured our world where it is today. In your face, blatantly, no shame whatsoever. And we could go on. The point is that as Bible-believing Christians, we have to be able to navigate life in this world where we don't belong. Everybody agree with that? It's not easy to stand up for what you believe in, is it? It's not. We're told by Jesus that we're to be salt and light in a world that is dark as can be. And if it could get any darker, which it can't, but if it could get any darker, it would. And we're to be salt and light. That's not an easy thing. When one tries to be salt and light in, in a world that is darker than ever, what happens? We become persecuted. People stand up and call you a bigot. They call you a racist. They call you a misogynist. And all these other things that we hear our world saying because we stand up for what God says. Not only in those issues, but when it comes to salvation. How dare you say Jesus is the only way? Oh my goodness. It comes with persecution. It comes with hardship. Exhaustion comes. Irritation comes. The thought of, I just want to quit. How many of you felt like quitting this week? I raised my hand. That's what being in the battle produces. And if we rely on ourselves, what happens is our flesh can only take us so far. And James gives us the answer. And that same atmosphere that these early New Testament believers were experiencing was there. Think of that time period. Jesus had just died on the cross a little bit before James has written. All right? They were being scattered because of persecution. Now listen, if, if it was up to this church to go to the world and God came in and scattered us, that's not something you want to happen. God used the persecution and the tribulations to take that church to go out to fulfill the mandate of going into all the world. But this New Testament church was experiencing all of those things. Exhaustion, trials, hardships, all of those things. And let me just say this. Here at our church, we've been engaged in the battle. Everybody agree? Those of you that are part of this church, who call this church your home, who is involved in the ministries deeply in this church, do you feel like you've been in a battle? Jolene's the only one, but I trust the rest of you are there because I know you are. We've been in a battle. We have been trying to be salt and light in this community that God has put us in. We have been confronting the world head on on Sunday morning when we preach, when we share, when we talk, when we teach. We don't pull any punches in what the Bible says. We take the issues head on from God's perspective, not ours. In youth group, the same thing. Battle. Issues. Tiredness. But we're confronting the world. The kids club, same thing. Same thing. We had the opportunity to go out and, and visit some, some of our young people's families this last Tuesday night. Their world is not what your world is. I can go around this room, and most of you, probably 98% of you, could not live in the place that they live. And the stuff that they put up with, in a way, from the, the world standpoint, meaning that they're in a battle. But we're in that battle with them. In the food pantry. Listen. 
The food pantry has become something that it wasn't years ago. It's become more effective into the community. Look around you. Look around you. There's a lot of people in this room this morning that came through that ministry, and we're grateful for that because that's what that ministry is for. That's what that ministry is for. In dealing with and, and ministering to those outside the door, some of our homeless people. Listen, it's a battle. It's a battle. And some of us have gotten beaten up. Anybody else there? Some of us are tired. Anybody else there? Some aren't even here anymore. Some want to quit. And sometimes we even point the finger at each other when it comes to getting involved and we don't think things are going the way they're supposed to. The easiest thing is to turn on each other. And the point is, is this. What James is talking about this morning is exactly where we are. This message is for us. I stand with you in the same spot, tired and worn out, but not giving up. James is saying, is anyone among you suffering? And that's what he's talking about. Beaten up in the battle. He's not talking about having a cold or having the flu or being sick, although that may be something that happened as a result of ministry or something. But he's talking about in the battle, are you hurting is what he's talking about. And as we've seen through those different translations, that the very words sort of mean the same thing. The Greek word that is translated into suffering is the thought of in trouble, and it means simply this, to suffer the evil blows from the outside world. Now listen, sometimes those blows don't come from outside, they come from inside the church, but they're outside of you. The point is, is that this suffering that he's talking about is being beaten up because of your beliefs. Being beaten up because you're trying to be different. Being beaten up because of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Keep in mind, James uses the words again, among you. So we know that he is writing not to those outside the church, but to those inside the church. Remember also what we read again from James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials. And remember, several weeks ago, matter of fact, quite a few weeks ago, we saw that, that trials are from where? Inside or outside? Outside. We're to count it all joy. This morning, we can sit here in this room, no matter how bad your week has been, and we can say, God, I'm grateful for those trials, because you know what? That means we're in the battle. That's the thoughts that he gives here. Trials are from the outside. James is talking to anyone who is under pressure from outside influences. In the church, as we have seen, but also outside the church. He is talking about physical pressure. He's talking about emotional pressure. He's talking about spiritual pressure. It can cause a believer to lose his joy and his happiness. And his focus. Most people who are under pressure, are they happy or sad? Most times we're sad. Most times we're sad. We're not happy. Again, this is not a reference to physical illness or healing, but a reference to spiritual weakness, to spiritual exhaustion, to spiritual weariness, and spiritual depression. All of those things are real. All of those things are real. He is counseling those who are experiencing the pressure not to act as he's talked about as we have walked through this letter. But he says to them, they need to pray. Have you ever heard the saying, we've done all we can and there's nothing left to do but pray? That's a heretical statement. 
first thing we should always do is what? Pray. Right. Psalm 50, verse 15 says this, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. James, later on in the passage here, and you can look at verses 17 through 18, uses Elijah as an example. And let me just read what he says, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. But Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. It said he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. I'll remind you what James has told them in verses 5 and following of chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, do what? Let him ask of God, who gives to all men, what? Liberally. It says, but let him ask in faith, with no doubt. And he talks about that double-minded man. James has already told them, in the trial, if you lack wisdom or lack the trust to move through it, you are to pray. And to ask God for the strength and the wisdom to endure because the endurance God is using to produce what in your life? Maturity. Spiritual maturity. The problem sometimes is we don't get far enough away from the noise or the conflict for it to get quiet enough to be able to hear. We'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about Elijah. James has already, or the great hymn that we all know has a lesson in it which says this, and this is the hymn you all will know. What a friend we have in Jesus. It says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Say it with me. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What most great Christians don't know about James is this. Apart from the facts that the evil Pharisees murdered him, is that James was known as old camel knees. How many knew that? Well, now you all can raise your hands. He was known as old camel knees, and there was a reason for that. James prayed so much to the Heavenly Father through Christ the Lord on his knees that he developed, according to tradition and history, he developed massive calluses on his knees. That growth of skin made his knees uh, look like a tough outer skin of a camel, hence the name. So James isn't preaching about something he doesn't practice. That's something that he practiced to the point that it physically marred his knees. James goes on in the next statement. He says there, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. This should always be our state of mind and soul. The word for cheerful or happy means this, the well-being of soul. Do you know that you can be happy in the worst times? A Christian's happiness should never come from the circumstances that are on the outside. Our happiness comes from our soul because of who God is and who we are in Christ. Everybody agree with that? That should have got a big amen. Let me read it again. Hold on, let me read it again. I want everybody together. Right? Our happiness should come from, from our soul because of who God is and who we are in Christ. Amen. Does any of our circumstances dictate anything about that statement? No. No. Mm -hmm. Romans 14, 17. Paul says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All things that are on the inside. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 says this, Paul again, Not that I speak in regard of to need, for I have learned whatever state I'm in, 
to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even in our worst state of being, we can rejoice in our true state of being. Prayer and praise always go hand in hand. If we pray in the struggle and we don't trust the God that we pray to, are we going to be joyful inside? No. So when the struggle comes and you pray, don't pray like a wave of the sea, as James would say, doubting, because you're unstable. Pray trusting God who is who he says he is, who does the, what he says he's going to do, and everything present, future, and way future, he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's what our faith is in. They were to pray when they were hurting and praise when they were happy. When we take our troubles to the Lord, he always points us to what we can be happy for. Prayer is not only a place to, it doesn't only give us a place to vent. But when we pray, God through the Holy Spirit usually points us to what? The truth. He usually points us to the truth. Let me read the verses preceding to the verses I just read in Philippians chapter 4. In verses 6, six through 9, it says this. Be anxious for nothing. Remember Paul says, I can be content in every place that I'm at. And he comes back here and he says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by what? Prayer and thanksgiving, or prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And then he says this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Then he says this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, do what? Think on these things. The things which you have learned and heard and received of me, these do, and it says, and the, peace, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul doesn't say in those verses, look to your circumstances. He says, don't worry about these things. Trust God, and God will give you peace. Not on the outside, but on the inside. The inside. What is it that, you're, that causes your contentedness? We're human. We tend to look on the outside. We tend to look at the storm around us. When in reality, we can walk through any situation when we have God, or when we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our heart. James in the next verse says this, is there anyone sick among you? It says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And here's where the context is very important. Because many, myself included, as I said earlier, have taken these verses to mean something that they don't mean. It's applicable and can be applied, but it's not what James is talking about in these verses. He says, is anyone among you sick? Now, our definition of sick would be what? Are you in the hospital with cancer? Are you at home with a cold? Are you suffering this, all right? That's not what James is saying. And the understanding of this passage, we have to understand what he means by sick. The Greek word here literally means without strength or to be weak. Now he's asked, is any of you among you suffering? Keep the verses in, in, in order, all right? The suffering is from the trials. Trials cause us to be weak. Keep the verses together, all right? It can mean weakness of body, weakness of soul, or weakness in the spirit. And Paul uses the same word in Romans 14 where it says, Accept him whose faith is weak. James uses a different word in verse 15 for the sick than he did in verse 14. 
It says that a prayer, the prayer of faith will save the sick. Uh, the word he uses here means to be weary and gives this suggestion of weariness of mind. That same word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, 3, where it talks of, where it's translated to grow weary. To grow weary in what? The trials. The trials. Keeping everything in context, James is talking about those who have been suffering and have prayed and are at the next stage, which leads to quitting. Keep in mind, again, the subject of James is what? Faith. Faith. So the faith of the believer must be what James is talking about here. What is weak? It's the faith. With those thoughts in mind, James is saying when you reach the point where the struggle has taken everything out of you, the struggle of persecution, remember again who he's writing to, these believers who have been beaten up. Not like we've been beaten up, believe me. We got it easy. But, but these people have been battered and beaten and sent out because of the persecution that was going on. Uh, they were facing uh, persecution and hostility, both for their faith. They were tempted to give up and to get out. They had grown weak and weary. James is not talking about the flu or cancer here. Although we can apply these in some aspects to this. He asks the question and then gives the answer. And the answer is this. Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And most times in most churches, we've looked at it this way. When you're sick and in the hospital, you call the pastor. The pastor gathers up the leaders. They get a little bottle of oil. They go into the hospital. They dip their finger. They put it on your head to represent the Holy Spirit. And they pray over you. Are all of those things truths that we can do? Yes. But that's not what James is talking about here. That's not what he's talking about in the context of the book. <clears throat> the one who has reached this point and his faith is weak is to call on the elders, or in our case, the deacons. And they are to come and to pray over him. First, they need to call. Then the elders are to pray. Then James says they are to anoint. And keep that order in mind. Because it's not anoint and pray. It's pray and anoint. And there's a reason why they're separate. Here's another word that needs to be clarified. When we hear the word anoint, what do we always think of? We think of the Old Testament where Samuel went and anointed David, right? And he poured the head, oil on his head, right? Or, or when kings were anointed, or priests, when they were anointed for ministry. This anointing was pouring over their heads, and it was a ceremonial anointing. The word James uses here is the same word that, that is used in the story of the Good Samaritan. The word here means to rub with oil. Not anoint with oil like over the head. To rub with oil. James is, is saying, call the elders, have them pray, and then let them, literally, let them oil him with oil. Put that in your head for a little bit. The elders were not to dip their finger in the oil and put a drop on the person's head as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. They were to literally rub the sick person with oil to provide comfort. Remember in that time period, what was medicinal was what? Olive oil. And they would rub it on the wounds. They would rub it on the wounds. Olive oil in that time and culture, it was used in a ceremonial way, but it was also medicinal. It was taken internally for the stomach and externally for the healing on the outside. To this day, a lot of people use olive oil the same way. James was saying to those who were at this point that they should be treated by the bedside with the best medicine known to man at that time. They should be oiled with oil and they should be prayed over. Doctors in our time do the best they can, humanly speaking. And God has given us medicine to use. But prayer and his power make the medicine work. Here's the picture. 
if you're weak and sick, you're to call the elders. You're not to complain and do any of those other things. You're to call the elders. Who are your elders? Who are your deacons here at this church? I'm one of them. Gary's one of them. James is one of them. Joe and Tom are one of them. I had to get the name in my head there. All right? They're your deacons. So if you're struggling in the battle, it doesn't say you go complain to your neighbor. It says you call your leader. In our case, deacons, because our deacons are what would you be performed as, as the elders of our church, if you want to call it that. You call them. And what are they to do? They're to answer the call, and they're to come, and they're to pray over you. And then they're to give you a spiritual massage. That's exactly what he's saying. It's exactly what he's saying. It doesn't mean that they're going to come and rub you down with olive oil. But the point is, is that in that time period, that was medicinal. And they would rub it in, and it would cause relief. James is saying that if you're weak from the battle, and you pray, and if you cannot get that inner sense of relief, the elders are here to ease the hurt. If you're weak emotionally, they're here to rub in the oil of encouragement. We find ourselves strung out and worn out, ready to give out, giving in or get out, when we're discouraged and defeated, weak and wounded, losing. The battle of the Spirit. We should call for the elders so that they can pray and encourage us. Let's go back to the example of Elijah. And we'll close with this thought. We're doing all right. Let's close with this thought. It says in the book of James here that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what does that mean? Elijah prays in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. In verse 2, God tells him, to get away and go, he, to pray for rain. And that's the passage that, or the instance that, that James is talking about. In chapter 2, God tells him uh, to get away and go to the brook Cherith, where God uses the water and the ravens to feed and to take care of him. He confronts Ahab in the next section of verses. He takes on the 450 prophets of Baal on the Mount of Carmel and, and has them all killed. Yet he runs in fear from a woman named Jezebel. If you all know the story, he faced those 450 prophets of Baal, but when he was done with them, Jezebel threatens to go after him, and this one woman, it scares him to death, and he runs. And he runs into the wilderness. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, it says this, But he himself went a day's journey, speaking of Elijah, into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, put your, we, we look at Elijah, and here's this great man of faith, right? He has done things that we'll never do. Facing those, those 400, can you imagine facing Satan head on? Which is what he did with those prophets of Baal. And what went on in that battle? He seen God take rain. From the from the river or from the, the Mediterranean to bring it up and they, they and rain came afterwards. He saw his servants run. Sandy and I were on Mount Carmel. It says that he went and got water. You know how far away the water was? You know how big the jars were? For that was a that was a God thing. All of that. And he sees all of that. And he gets done that great amount of ministry, all right? He's battled hard. He's been in it for a while. And what does he do? He's not rejoicing on a mountaintop. What happened? It says he's sitting under a broom tree where he ran to hide. And what's it say he did? He prayed that God might take his life. He's done. We all get there. He's a nature like ours. He is worn out and he wants to quit. And what does God do in those next verses? In verses 5 through 12, 1 Kings chapter 19, it says this. That as he lay and slept under a broom tree... So suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, 
And there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the Mount of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Oh, I'm the only one that's left. What's he having? He's having a big ministry pity party. There's nobody else around. It's just me, God. I lost my place. Here we go. He says, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, capital H, God, go out and stand on the mountain before God. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. Listen, what did God do for Elijah? He, he was a nature like ours, this great man of God in the Old Testament that, that called down fire from heaven, got spiritually depressed and spiritually weak and emotionally done, and he wanted to quit. And what does he do? God, in this passage, does what the elders are supposed to do in the New Testament with the Holy Spirit's help, he encourages and exhorts and comes alongside and holds Elijah up and ministers to him. And we know the story later on that Elisha then, not soon after, uh, takes over the ministry. The point is this. You say, why did you go to all this? And I know I probably went longer than I should, but that's all right. The point is this. Ministry is tough. Church is tough. Church life is tough. Because we're human beings. And we rub against each other sometimes. And we rub each other the wrong way. And sometimes we develop these feelings that we shouldn't have. And God says, listen. If you're suffering, pray. He says, Are, is there anyone cheerful? And listen to me very carefully. There's not one of us that nothing in life has touched us so bad that we can't rejoice about who we are in Jesus Christ. You can walk into the lion's den with confidence. Those lions look bad and fierce, don't they? But Daniel went in with what? I'm sure outside he wasn't happy about it, but inside he knew his God would meet him there, didn't he? We can be joyful. God says if you're, also James says, and God through James says, listen, if you're struggling and you're weak, call. Call one of your deacons. If they don't answer their phone, call me, and we'll go to their house. <laughs> They'll answer their phone, I know they will. God has given us very gracious and good leaders here at this church. And they pray over you all week long. And they care about what happens to you. And the Bible says when we get in that battle so deep that we're to call. And then they're to come. And they're to pray. And they're to spiritually massage or comfort you is the, really the thought. So I don't know where you are today. We're going to close with that. We're going to get into our songs now. But I just want everybody to bow their heads. And just think through some things real quick as we, as we sort of apply what we've talked about. What do we do with this? First thing is this. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that's where it starts. 
The Bible says, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That means there's not one person in this room that's not separated from God from the moment that they're born. You say, well, that's a bad thing. Well, it's not a bad thing in the fact that God also, it is a bad thing, but the good part is that God has provided the way for that situation to be fixed. It says in Romans 5 eight, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means in your state as a lost person, Jesus has already done the work to pay the penalty for your sin. The penalty for your sin is death. It's separation from God. Now, and if nothing's done now, eternally. For the wages of sin is death. But the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is that gift. His work on the cross is that gift that takes care of our sin problem so that we can have a relationship with God now and heaven later. If you're here and that's you, James is going to play here in a second for just a couple seconds. We're not going to hold out the invitation real long. If you need somebody to talk to while everybody's heads are bowed, just come front and we'll get one of our leaders to take you and take the Bible and show you what Scripture says. For the rest of us that are here, and we know the Lord is our Savior, everybody's head bowed and every eye closed. I want to open around. Is anybody in here struggling emotionally, physically, spiritually? Say, listen, Pastor, I need you to pray for me this week. Anybody? You can raise your hands up now. My hand's up too. Anybody else? several that are up. Listen, if you need help because the battle is that strong, that's one of the importances of church. We're a family. We walk through the good times and the bad times. We serve and we endure. Remember, the, 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 the theme is faith and an enduring faith. God has a work for us to do. So I'm just going to give you a second. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe just play real quick for a couple seconds. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you want to come talk to somebody, everybody's head is bowed, every eye is closed, just come front. For those that raise their hand because they're struggling in the battle. Because we're going to sing the songs next doesn't mean that you can't come front and let us pray with you now. If you want to come front, you can come front too. Is there anybody? Don't be ashamed. We're all here to bear each other's burdens. Anybody? Father God, we're grateful for Jesus. We thank you that in him was the ultimate burden bearer. The one who would take the shame and the pain and the sting of death, the penalty of sin. And Lord, we thank you that through him we can know you and have eternal life. And God, I pray for those who raise their hands, and I know many that haven't raised their hands that are struggling, Lord. I pray that we would trust you in the battle, that we would be patient and endure, that we would stay the course, there is a great reason why we're here. 